Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, and purify yourselves, and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had, and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak below Bethel. So it was named Alon Bakuth. After Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked to him Bethel. Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't be afraid, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Onai, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Adair. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Jacob had twelve sons, the sons of Leah, Reuben the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Rachel's maidservant, Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali, or maidservant Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Leah's maidservant Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob, who were born to him in Padan Aram. Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre, near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years, then he breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of years, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that you work in the lives of your people and you watch over them and guide them uh, and shepherd them. Thank you that you watch over us and guide us. Uh, And Lord, as we uh, hear about how you have done that in the past, this morning as we think about Genesis 35, we pray that you would strengthen us for the future, uh, remind us of your faithfulness uh, and strengthen our trust in you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I, I might have mentioned it before, I'm not sure, but one of my favourite uh, moments in film history is in uh, the, you know, the highbrow film Hot Shots 2. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it. And uh, there's a moment, they're on the plane and one of the guys is reading Great Expectations uh, and, and one of the other people says to him, ah, what, do you, what do you think of it? And he says, it wasn't all I'd hoped for. Uh, Come on. It's one of the great moments uh, in film. But life is like that, isn't it? Uh, Life is like like that statement. Great expectations, uh, but not all that we hope for. Uh, Life is full of great hopes, uh, but also great disappointments. You might have hoped that the Swans would win the grand final, Uh, I was hoping that they would win the grand final, but uh, you might now be disappointed that they didn't. Uh, You might have hoped to build a successful career, but after five years in the field that you're in, you've discovered that that is not going to happen. What you had dreamed of is not uh, the way things are turning out. You might have had great aspirations for your children. Uh, You might have had great ideas of what they would accomplish and what they would achieve, But it turns out that that's not what has happened. It turns out they had other ideas or God had other ideas uh, as well. I'm often struck by the plight of athletes uh, who spend their lives training for, say, the 100 metres freestyle. Uh, they, They spend their lives aiming to win the gold medal. And they wait four years, whatever it is, for the Olympics to come around and they try their hardest, and they don't even make the final. Life is full of great hopes, but also great disappointments. And in fact, I think that's even more of a problem for us as Christians, because we have extraordinarily great expectations of what God is going to do. God is saving people through Jesus. God is calling people to himself through the preaching of the gospel. God is transforming people through the power of the Holy Spirit into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's worth saying, I think, that the hope in the Bible is not, I hope that this happens, but it's the eager expectation of something that hasn't happened yet. I know that's going to happen. I'm living in hope. I'm living in the hope of that reality. God is going to do all those things. But it's actually the rock-solid certainty that we have of what God has promised that he's going to do, it's that rock-solid certainty that actually makes it more difficult to accept the times when God doesn't seem to be doing the things that he's promised. It's the rock-solid certainty of what God has promised that makes it hard to understand why he's not doing the things that we expect. 
And here in this chapter, we see hope and disappointment woven together in the life of Jacob. Uh, In this one chapter, Jacob is reminded of the great promises of God, but at the same time, he's confronted by the bitter reality and disappointment of a troubled family and a broken world. But this chapter, because it weaves those things together, because it holds them both side by side, it also gives us clues for ourselves as we live in that reality of great expectations and bitter disappointments. It gives us clues for how we can live uh, in a world marked by those uh, things, by hope and discouragement. Well, chapter 35 follows on from last week in chapter 34 where Jacob's sons committed that terrible act of revenge and because of that, now it's not safe for them to stay where they are. So Jacob says in verse, or God says to Jacob in verse 1, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you uh, when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. In some ways, not much has changed in the life of Jacob. Earlier in his life, he had to flee from his brother, and now God appears to him and tells him to flee back to where he'd come from in the first place. So he'd had to flee in the first place out of the land, now he has to flee back into the land. And yet as God comes to his people, as he comes to Jacob and, and, and commands him to go back, we discover that things are not all that they might have seemed in Jacob's household. We're told in verse 2 that Jacob goes to his house, he goes to his family, to his people, and he says, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress uh, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. It turns out that the house is full of idols. These people are supposed to be the people of God and they've got idols kind of filling up their houses. They're caught up in the worship, uh, the people of God are caught up in the worship of pathetic little statues in the place of the living God. And it's easy for us, I think, to look at Jacob and his family and uh, to think to ourselves, well, we're so much better than they were. We're we're so much more sophisticated, aren't we? Uh, We're so much more faithful than than they were. But that's just because our idols stay locked up in our hearts rather than being fashioned into objects that sit on our shelves. Idols of stone and wood are just physical manifestations of what lies in our hearts. People make idols because they want to worship something. It's not the idol that's the problem, it's, it's, the, it's the inner reality which then gives it, gives it comes to expression in constructing something out of stone and wood. People make idols because they want something to trust. The problem is not the idol, the problem is the desire in our hearts to worship, the desire to want to worship something other than God, to trust something other than God. Tim Keller in his uh, fantastic book, Counterfeit Gods, talks about the three most powerful idols in our society, that is money, sex and power. They're the things that people most 
trust in and most worship uh, in our culture, he says. But actually he points out that idols can be just about anything. And he goes on to talk about how we can spot the idols in our lives. He says, first of all, that we can spot idols in our lives by looking at what we daydream about. What is it that occupies our minds? What is it that, 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 that is, expresses our greatest desire? When we spend our waking hours plotting how we can make money and how we can arrange our finances so that we can get enough to afford that thing that we really, really want, and when that's the thing that goes over and over in our minds day after day, that's a pretty sure sign that that thing has become an idol. It's the thing that we worship. We can spot our idols by what we, uh, by our daydreams. Keller says we can also spot our idols by our nightmares. That is, what do we fear the most? What if we lost would make life not worth living? So we might idolise success so that when success doesn't come or when we experience failure, all of a sudden, Suicide becomes a viable option. My life isn't worth anything anymore. We idolise our relationship with someone so that if a friend leaves us, we feel as though we can't go on without them. We can identify our eyes by what we daydream about, by our nightmares. We can identify them by what we sacrifice ourselves for. We sacrifice our health for our job, for our career. We sacrifice our family for our aspirations. We sacrifice our friendships for our new girlfriend or our new boyfriend. We sacrifice our time for study or school or sport, but not for church. What does that say about what it is that we worship? Finally, Keller says we can locate our idols by looking at our most unyielding emotions. That is, what makes us uncontrollably angry or anxious or despondent or what racks us with guilt that we can't shake. We idolise our free time so that if someone interrupts us while we're doing what we want, we explode with anger. We idolise our bank balance or our capital so that when it gets too low, we're unspeakably anxious. We idolise peace so that even the prospect of a potential conflict causes us to lose sleep night after night. Keller says, what many people call psychological problems are simple issues of idolatry. Perfectionism, workaholism, chronic indecisiveness, the need to control the lives of others, all of these stem from making good things into idols that then drive us into the ground as we try to appease them. The reformer John Calvin said that our hearts are factories of idols. That is, we can make an idol out of just about anything. A few years ago... 
uh, I went to a conference. Uh, there was a Bible scholar that I respected greatly, uh, and he was coming to Australia. And I thought I could go, I could go and hear him speak. Uh, and so I signed up, uh, and I was excited about going. And I thought to myself, No, I'm under control. I've got this. It's all worked out. This isn't idolatry. This is just esteem and respect. And so he spoke, and after the talk, I raced up into the line to you know, get my chance to speak to him. And the 90-second you know, conversation that ensued was over before I knew it. And I, I just felt, I felt disconsolate. I, I felt empty. And I realised in that moment that... I thought I was in so, so much in control of myself, but actually it was idolatry uh, rather than esteem. Isn't it often the case is that we think we're so, we're so in control of our idols, but actually when we lose them, as Keller says, they are shown up to be what they really are. The condition of our hearts is shown to be what it really is. Like in Jacob's house, there can be a vast gap between saying, we are the people of God, and the actual reality of following God. Well, to Jacob's credit, he takes the initiative. Uh, he commands, God commands him to leave and to go home, uh, and then he challenges his family to serve and to worship God. Uh, he calls them to do several things in that. He calls them to get rid of their idols. He calls them to purify themselves and to change their clothes. Uh, and he calls them to worship and serve with him the true God. He's calling them essentially to a fresh start with God. He's calling them to get rid of everything from their old way of life. And he's calling on them to start serving the, uh, and trusting the true God. The washing or the purifying and the change of clothes is just a symbol, uh, a symbol of that new beginning. They've turned from one way, from trusting idols, uh, to serving the, the, new, uh, the true and living God. So Jacob calls his family to do that and they respond. They gather their idols, they bury them under the tree, uh, under this big oak tree at Shechem. Uh, and when they finally... Uh, reach Bethel, having set out, when they finally reach Bethel, Jacob and all the, the people with him recommit themselves to God by building this altar uh, at this place which Jacob names El Bethel. And I think uh, as we probe uh, the depths of our hearts and as we ask ourselves, are there idols in our lives uh, that we're serving and uh, that we're worshipping, and as we discover that perhaps we're not so much different from Jacob's household as we might have thought, we ask the question, what is it that we need to do? How do we respond to the idols in our lives? Uh, and Jacob shows us the way. He says that what we need to do is to make a fresh start. What we need to do is to get rid of the idols in our lives and to begin serving and trusting God. What do you do if your life is choked up by idols? You need to turn away from them and to begin trusting and serving God. Uh, you don't need to build an altar like Jacob did because the one sacrifice once and for all uh, has been made by Jesus Christ. What you need to do is to acknowledge those idols that you have to God and you need to ask him to forgive you through Jesus. 
You don't need uh, to ask, uh, you need to ask God, sorry, not just to bury your idols under a tree, but to bury your past idolatry uh, in the tomb with Jesus. Not buried as Jacob and his family did under a tree with the risk that someone will dig it up. There are the idols. Don't you remember the idols? But buried with Jesus, destroyed forever and forgotten. You need to ask God to make you a new person, like Jesus, through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. You need to ask God not simply to give you a new change of clothes and a bath, like Jacob's family did, but you need to ask God to give you a new identity in Jesus through the powerful work of his Holy Spirit, a new identity crafted and forged in Jesus Christ. But you also need to get rid of those idols. And getting rid of idols can mean pretty severe kind of action. If alcohol is an idol, it might mean going through the cupboards and throwing out every ounce of alcohol that is in the house. If social media and the internet and being connected is your idol, then it might mean chucking out the iPhone and getting one of those old school feature phones. You know the ones? It's with the buttons. It might mean cutting off the internet because actually it's consuming your heart, consuming your mind, consuming your attention. If your relationship with someone is your idol, it might mean stepping back from a friendship. It might might mean saying, actually, we just need some space here. If success is your idol, it might mean giving up a job or giving up a job opportunity. If a comfortable existence in the kind of the perfect setting with the perfect kitchen and the perfect backyard and the perfect lifestyle, if that's your idol, it might mean selling your house and downsizing, something more moderate. If wanting desperately to be someone other than you are is your idol, you might have to stop watching X Factor. And start thanking God for who he's made you to be. Rather than spending your time wishing that you were someone else. Getting rid of idols might mean taking some pretty severe action. But Jesus says it's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be cast into hell. But it's interesting, isn't it, that here in this passage the problem is not Jacob's own idolatry but the idolatry in his family. That is, the idolatry is uh, not his, but, but the, the idolatry of people around him. And it's been going on for years and he's not said anything about it. And I think the truth is that like Jacob, we often relax when we've dealt with the idols in our own lives and we never mention anything about the sins going on in other people's lives. We never 
move beyond thinking about ourselves. We get our own life in order and then relax, even though the life of our family or the life of our friends or the life of our church is in disarray. The biggest need for us may not be to deal simply with personal idolatry, but it might be the need to deal with the idolatry in our family, in our spouse, in our children, in our friend, in a, in, with the person in our growth group, with the church. We might need to say to someone that we love, your aspirations and your dreams are killing you. Or worse, actually, more to the point, your, asp- your aspirations and your dreams are killing your relationship with God. The way you use the internet is choking God out of your life. Those are painful uh, conversations to have. In one sense, dealing with our own sin is easy. Well, it's easier. Dealing with the sins of other people around us in a loving and Christ-like way is incredibly painful and difficult. But that's what Jacob had to do with his family. God called him to set out, so called them to set out on a new path, and Jacob had to say, This idolatry has to stop. We have to serve God. Sometimes that's what God is calling us to do as well. So Jacob confronts sin in his family and together they recommit to serving the one true God. Uh, But then after they commit themselves to God and they build this altar, God appears to Jacob and reaffirms his commitment. God says in verse 10, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you and I will give this land to your descendants after you. God's words are a kind of reaffirmation of everything that he had promised uh, Jacob before. So in chapter 32, God had changed Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel. Uh, The command here to be fruitful and to multiply is a reaffirmation of the command given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Uh, God promises here that Jacob will be the father of many nations and of kings. And God promises that Jacob and his descendants will receive the land as an inheritance. And those are promises that God had already made previously to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. But the question is, why is God repeating them now? Jacob had heard them all before. Why is he saying the same thing all over again? To understand why, I think it's important to see where this event takes place. It takes place at Bethel. And the writer of this chapter wants us to understand that that's important. Uh, He wants us, uh, he tells us in verse 7. There he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Nearly 80 years before Jacob had fled the promised land because his brother Esau wanted to kill him, 
and as he was fleeing, God had appeared to him, and God had appeared to him at Bethel. And now on his way back into the promised land, God appears to him at exactly the same place. And when you go back and you look at what God said the first time around, it becomes clear why he's saying the same thing for a second time. So flick back a few chapters to uh, Genesis 28, 13. Uh, And there God says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until the day I have until I have done what I have promised you. So when he was fleeing, God appeared to Jacob and said to him, You're leaving the promised land now, but I'm going to bring you back. I promise that that will happen. And that's exactly what God had done. God has brought him back. So many things had happened in those 80 years that he'd been out of the promised land. Jacob had left alone, he'd, he'd fled for his life. Uh, He'd been married twice, Uh, he got married twice, he'd he'd been tricked into marrying the wrong woman and then he'd married uh, again for a second time. Uh, He'd had 12 sons and a daughter, he'd been cheated by his father-in-law, he'd become a wealthy man, he'd been reconciled with his brother who'd been previously estranged and his sons had committed this horrible genocide. So many things had happened in those intervening 80 years But the long and the short of it was that despite all that, through all that, God had brought Jacob back. God had brought him back to the very spot where he'd first appeared to him and made that promise that he he would bring him back. God brought him back and repeated all that he had said. Kind of as a way of saying, I think, do you see? I did what I promised. I promised that I'd bring you back and I've done it. It's taken 80 years, but I did everything that I said I would. Not a word has fallen to the ground. God brought him back to reaffirm his commitment to Jacob and to reaffirm his trustworthiness. And the more life goes on, the more I realise how much we all need to hear those reaffirmations of God's trustworthiness. Because we're so prone, I think, to disbelieve God. We're so prone, uh, having disbelieved God, then to put our trust in idols, other things in the place of God. Now, you and I might wish that God would do for us what he did for Jacob. That is, we might wish that God would appear to us in a vision, that God would speak to us uh, in an audible voice, that God would speak to us in a dream, But actually we have something far, far greater than what Jacob had. The Apostle Peter says we have the words of God made more certain. We have the words of God made more sure. You and I might not have God appearing to us at the top of a ladder uh, or God appearing to us and calling, calling for us to build an altar. 
But every week we meet together and God says to us, do you see, I did exactly what I said. Every time we open the Bible, God opens his lips and speaks to us with his own voice and says, see, I did all that I promised. God says, I promise to forgive you, and I have. I've done that on Calvary. Do you see? I promise to rescue you, and I've done that. I sent my own son to take you by the hand and to lead you. I promise to fix the world, and and you see the powerful work of recreation is breaking into this world through the work of the Holy Spirit. People are being born again into a new creation. And the new creation is taking hold of people's lives, taking hold of Christians' lives and transforming them into the image of Jesus Christ with ever-increasing glory. I promise to raise the dead, and I have. I raise my own son as the first fruits of a resurrection to eternal life for everyone who trusts in him. We have so much more than what Jacob had. Jacob had to wait 80 years. 80 years between the first word from God and that reaffirmation of of all that God had done. We don't have to wait more than a few minutes. We just have to flop the Bible open and hear God Reaffirm what he's done. God speaks to us every day in the Bible and the Spirit takes those words and writes those words deeply on our hearts so that we would trust God more and more. You see, God's remedy to our idolatry is not only the cross, it's also his faithful and trustworthy words and promises which strengthen our faith and our trust in God. So Jacob confronts the sin of his family, they recommit to serving God, uh, and God comes and and reaffirms his commitment uh, to do what he's promised Jacob. But after Jacob's recommitment to God and God's reaffirmation, the last half of this chapter seems like a bit of an anticlimax. Already in verse 8, we've heard about the death of Deborah, Rebecca's nurse. Now, almost straight after hearing about God's promises, his reiteration of his promises, we're told about the death of Rachel, Jacob's wife. She goes into labour on the journey and, and ends up dying, giving birth to Benjamin. And Rachel's death is followed almost straight away by Reuben's adultery. He sleeps with his father's concubine. So this family, despite their recommitment to God, is still, they've still got issues, to say the least. And finally, in verse 27, we hear of Jacob's reunion with his father, nearly 80 years after they parted ways. But that reunion, while exciting, is short-lived. Isaac dies at the age of 180, and we're told in verse 29, he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. There's so much death and dishonour here, 
It seems like such an anticlimax after all that God had done. And yet, there's also these glimmers of hope. So, it's not a small miracle by any means that Jacob and Esau should stand there at the side of their father's grave burying him together. They'd been enemies. And, and now they could stand together. And even though Isaac dies, the description of him being gathered to his fathers gives us just a glimpse of something beyond the grave. Jake, uh, Isaac's not just dead and buried and rotting in the grave, but he's gathered with God's people who've gone before him. That is, there's hope here, but it's hope mixed with the reality of life in a fallen world, with death and sin and dishonour. The second half of chapter 35 is not so much an anticlimax as it is a pointed reminder that even though Jacob has finally got back to the promised land, God hasn't finished doing what he's promised to do. The world still needs to be put right. The world is still not like it was in the Garden of Eden. It's a reminder that Jacob is still waiting for God to fulfill all that he's promised. And I think it's a reminder to us of the same reality. That we're still waiting. There's still more that God has promised to do. God's done a lot already. But it's not finished. There's still years ahead of us of trusting and waiting. God's faithfulness in the past doesn't mean that everything is fixed now. God's faithfulness in sending Jesus doesn't mean that all our pain is over. God's faithfulness at the cross uh, in bringing us forgiveness doesn't mean that the ravages of sin have, have ceased in our life. God's faithfulness in the resurrection doesn't mean that sickness has lost its grip in our world. We're still waiting. Waiting like Jacob was waiting waiting in the midst of hope and disappointment. Waiting in the midst of the ongoing effects of death and sin. But importantly, God's faithfulness in all those ways, in all those ways that we've seen him be faithful in the past, God's faithfulness in those things helps us to wait. It gives us reason to keep trusting God. So we can stand at the edge of a grave and we can say, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand on the latter day upon the earth. And though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh will I see God. We can sit in the hospital waiting room anticipating a devastating diagnosis. And we can say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
We can sit amidst the ruins of our broken family and we can say, I trust in your unfailing love. We can sit amidst the the remnants of our failed business or our failed mortgage or uh, our failed career and we can say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Who will you trust? That's the question that this passage invites us to answer. Who will you trust? Amid the ruins and disappointments of life, who will you trust? Will you trust in idols that do nothing? Or will you turn and trust the living God? Will you trust in Jesus and all that God has done for you in him? And if you've turned to trust God, will you keep trusting God today as you have yesterday? And will you keep trusting God tomorrow as you have today? Who will you trust? The living God who makes promises and who keeps them or the empty idols that make promises that they can never deliver. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the mighty and powerful God of heaven and earth who made us and who loves us who has persevered with us despite our sinfulness, who calls us to return, to come to you, who invites us to the new creation, to the promised land, who sent his own son that we might be reconciled to you, that all our past idolatries might be hurled into the depths of the sea, that all our sins might be crucified, dead and buried. And that our future might be forged in union with the person of Jesus Christ, who became one of us in order to redeem us and to set us free from slavery to sin. Lord, help us to hear your call, to trust you and to turn to you, to forsake all else, Help us to hear that call and to respond with believing faith. Lord, if there are those among us who who are caught up in worshipping and serving things other than you, help us to repent of that, to acknowledge that uh, and to cast that before you. Uh, And Lord, help us as your people to encourage them to live a life uh, of serving Jesus and following him. Lord, help us to be people who are characterised by believing you and taking you at your word. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.